Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Basic Instinct, starring Michael Douglas, Sharon Stone, Gene Triplehorn, directed by Paul Verhoeven. And we'd like to welcome the listeners to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes fine spirits with new, old, and strange films. And today we're sitting down with a glass of Clyde Mays uh, rye whiskey from Alabama. And what's your verdict, Matt? Yeah, thumbs up. That's okay, terrific. excellent, excellent. Mm-hmm. So we definitely need... Uh, a drink right now to to cleanse the palate of last week's of last week's film. If you went out and saw it, amen to you. If you just wanted to listen to the podcast, also amen to you. Amen to all our listeners. Um, we are still very pleased with the number of people reaching out to the podcast, listening to it, leaving reviews. You guys are some pretty good fans so far, so thank you. We appreciate the traction. This is uh, kind of a passion project of Jesse and mine, and. We're glad that you're finding some enjoyment in it, so we hope to keep killing it for you, but mostly thank you all. Mm -hmm. So talk about another palate cleanser. Today we're going to be diving into Basic Instinct from 1992, and compared to last week, this one's going to check a lot of boxes, but you know, as we get through our our synopsis and breakdown of it, you're going to kind of see that there's something pretty special there. If you haven't had a chance to see it, it is actually currently streaming on Amazon Prime and Hulu, so... You have access to those streaming outlets please seek it out but uh today we're going to start with uh the flight question and you know kind of going back to last week as well the trailer for serenity really sold it as a traditional film noir with the femme fatale this convoluted plot for money and murder and sex and all of that and obviously we didn't get that movie so Along those lines, my question to you, Matt, is what is another, or in your opinion, the most misleading movie trailer that you've seen? This might be met with some laughs out there because it's weird to talk about a movie that might be as schlocky or maybe as overplayed as the franchise was by the time it got to this entry for me. But, you know, it's it's Paranormal Activity 3. You know, there's a lot of discussion about there about the validity of 1 and 2. Uh, we're both fans of both those, mm-hmm. and I was really hoping that the third movie would deliver and sort of put the pieces together, and we left that film that night being completely catfished. Mm-hmm. Literally and figuratively. Literally, right. <laughs> I mean, there are the people behind Catfish. Yeah. Like, there's ties to the show there's and the, the other movie. The movie that came out a few years before this. Which also, by the way, that movie was in contention for this for me also. Mm-hmm. Go back and watch the Catfish trailer sometime with mm-hmm. the music. That is not what that film is. Yep. But at least the things in that trailer are in the movie. Mm-hmm. Paranormal Activity 3, the trailer, mm-hmm. I don't have the meter. I don't have the actual numbers <laughs> on this. But I bet you 50 to 65% of that trailer mm-hmm. never even made it into the movie. Mm-hmm. The part where the demonologist comes and gets his head bounced off the table... The creepy writing from the child, which is against you know mm-hmm. standard horror staple. Mm-hmm. And if and I'm the, not if it, I'm not mistaken, I think the Bloody Mary bit in the mirror. I don't think got that, in the movie. That didn't make the final cut either. And what's a shame because that could have been a pretty terrific film. Mm-hmm. And instead, we got 
a disappointment insofar as it didn't give you what it showed in the trailer. And then the movie just blew. Mm-hmm. No one is scared of a coven of 65 to 85-year-old women witches. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to run through them. Yeah. Right? And so that that was a really disappointing moment for me in film because I really was looking forward to that. And that trailer, uh, well, it was just a complete and utter lie. Mm-hmm. And talk about a franchise too that really didn't have to cut corners. I mean, they could have a budget of two to three million, if that, and all do with you know handheld photography with no name actors, and you know turn out like a thirty million opening weekend. That's the ROI on that is pretty incredible. I think you mentioned a couple of weeks ago that this franchise is the most profitable film money wise in the horror genre. Yeah, by a mile. But, you know, you know, with the pleasant surprise that was the first one and, you know, kind of the by the book sequel that the second one is, which I still kind of like that second one. Yeah. I'm with I'm kind of with you. That third one, you know, where's all that footage? Because I think I've seen at one point the director's cut or the extended version on Blu-ray or something. And I still don't think those scenes are anywhere to be found. Right. So they're in someone's safe somewhere at Paramount or wherever, but this was kind of the end of the franchise for you, wasn't it? Like It really was. Mm-hmm. And it was a franchise that I was undyingly loyal to. You know, I mean, I have the movie poster. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that that movie just just killed it for me. I, I refused to give my loyalty to a hack-ass director who's sitting in the back you know, aisle of the theater, mm-hmm. grinning, like saying, I got him. Mm-hmm. Like, you shouldn't be getting me by giving me a false trailer get me through story in the actual movie itself Mm -hmm. and that just is such a cheap cheap like that's just shitty filmmaking Mm -hmm. excuse my language but Mm -hmm. that is just that's just really really bad filmmaking Mm -hmm. and hell with you (laughs) i unfortunately saw the rest of them it didn't get much better to tell you the truth they eventually went into the parallel dimension where these spirits and everything live and you do eventually get to see toby this demon and it's it's so lame you're wondering how did we get here by the time you're at that stage you they've completely thrown the simplicity of that original film totally out the window film on camera on a tripod looking down a hallway and a couple like that's pretty pretty simple to say the least yeah so good choice good choice thanks your turn mine is going to be now, first, just a little precursor. I am of a huge, huge fan. And maybe we'll get to talk about this one day. We'll do a cask. I'm a huge fan of Nolan's Batman trilogy. Not only am I just a fan of the character, but what he did in the, this this three-film trilogy is what I think nothing short of remarkable. And the tone really fit Batman. And, you know, it was kind of a win for Warner Brothers, both financially, critically, uh, hard to come by these days. Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, this is yeah, kind of kind of like the prelude into what we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. But uh, during the the midnight screening of Dark Knight Rises, they showed the first teaser for Man of Steel. So it's about a one minute teaser, really beautifully shot, and they use music from Fellowship of the Ring actually. And you're like, wow, this isn't Richard Donner's Superman. This is like the auteur Superman. Like I'm down. We got a second trailer a few months later little bit longer actually showed you know more of the character more of what the world was going to look like and stylistically it just fit it had kind of those you know those those drabby tones that dark knight had but it was still superman and you had all the characters that you know you knew and love lois lane perry white etc and 
Then we got a final trailer, and that's one, that one's almost three minutes long, and it's amazing. Go back. If you haven't seen it in a while, go back and watch it, and you'll just be like, man, sign me up. I can't wait to see this movie. And then you went and saw the movie, and you were just like, oh, like, I kind of want my Richard Donner Superman back. Like, mm-hmm. like Zack Snyder really went full Zack Snyder in that movie. And, you know, say what you will, that there are some things I like about it. I actually think this is probably maybe one of DC's later, maybe one of their better efforts. It got worse. It got a hell of a lot worse. But the amount of just pure destruction and just disregard for human life, disregard for the characters, disregard for just monotonous noise the equivalency of man of steel is taking your toy bin just dumping it all over the floor in your toy room and just smashing all your toys together that's man of steel in a nutshell well and i'll add one more to that so yes i love that metaphor that you just used but if we're going to stick to the actual basis of man of steel with no recompense for destroying all of your toys you get new toys i've never seen so many buildings come down Mm -hmm. with such an abject loss mm-hmm. no no regard for loss of life yeah and i don't mean that they don't care about it mm-hmm. i mean it doesn't happen exactly like and these buildings topple down monumentally huge film yeah big action sequences lots of fights boom boom big explosions and literally no collateral damage mm-hmm. so take your toys and then take a wrecking ball to them and then you get a Shopping spree at Toys R Us. Which rest Toys R Us. You get a shopping spree, and that shopping spree was Batman versus Superman. So, oh my god, there you have it. You You know exactly with this destruction of these buildings. You know, kind of looking back at September 11th and this horrific event that had planes crashing into buildings, and we're you know 12 or so years removed, still pretty fresh in I would say everyone's eyes. How is crashing stuff and ships and stuff into buildings just toppling over like? okay like it also has a disregard for you know just just basic human life and less is so much more and i think that's why i prefer richard donner's christopher reeve's superman and that really captured the the essence of the character too i think henry cavill's a very unlikable superman i think the thing that got me the most about that movie on the negative side Mm -hmm. was the weird sequencing in the movie Mm -hmm. it wasn't told A, B, C, D, and that can work. It's been done a lot, and telling a movie out of sequence happens a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but that movie, the choices and the way that it was told was so poorly designed, I found myself really put out. And yeah. This is before we even got to the, the buildings and such that you're talking about. Yeah, you're put out before that. I just like, I just, why, why are we doing, just tell me the story. Mm-hmm. Stop bouncing around and this and that, and I, I love Amy Adams. Yeah. But you want to talk about a throwaway character. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's right up there with Ronan. Mm-hmm. They are very, very, very close to just taking up some some matter on screen mm-hmm. with little significance to the story. And she as the foil to just drive this stupid, out-of-sequence telling of, like, again, a what needed to be a monumentally larger film mm-hmm. compared to Batman mm-hmm. is just, just a hot mess. Oh, yeah. So what I thought was going to be the start of a new series, kind of in the vein of what Nolan left, kind of handing off, was nowhere near close to that. And DC's really struggled since since he took off, yeah. to, to, to say the least. But yeah. we'll bash on DC an- another day. But yeah, some pretty, some pretty great entries. And let's get right into it. 
let's get right into the happy hour, which is going to be our breakdown of basic instinct. Basic instinct begins with an erotic sex scene between a mystery couple. Things progress to a fever pitch until, oh my god, the mystery blonde murders the mystery man with an ice pick in an unbelievably graphic scene. So, wow, off to to a great start there. You tease me and then, like, (laughs) horrify me. Quite the opening. (laughs) We are then introduced to Detective Nick Curran, played by Michael Douglas. We learn that the murdered male is a local retired rock and roll star named Johnny Boz, with all eyes, all eyes pointing to his girlfriend named Catherine Tremell, Sharon Stone, who isn't at her city home, but rather her multi-million dollar beachfront property, which can be bought for the the extremely low price of $17 million if you if you have that 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 change. From the get-go, we can already see Catherine wrapping her fingers around the weak-minded Nick. Catherine is worth millions from her parents' assets and has multiple degrees and is also an author who has written a book, coincidentally, involving a murdered rock and roll star with an ice pick. When he's not investigating his cases, Nick spends his time doing psych evaluations with Dr. Beth Garner, Jean Triplehorn, whom they've also had a past affair. He is doing these sessions because of an accidental manslaughter case involving some tourists while he was totally coked out. It is now time to interrogate Miss Tremell. But alas, she has the upper hand, and we are treated to a scene that is responsible for breaking many a VHS player. She passes a lie detector test, but the damage is done. Nick, who has been sober for a few months, immediately starts drinking again. Double blackjacks. Beth visits him when what starts out again as passion-filled sex suddenly turns violent, and we see another dark, unhinged side of Nick. We learn that Beth and Catherine at this point went to school together at Berkeley, And as Nick and Catherine get a little closer, we learn that she is writing a new book about a detective, and she has been doing a lot of research on Nick's past wrongdoings as inspiration. Turns out she got a file from a rival cop who winds up dead, and Nick the prime suspect. Nick goes to, um, they finally, Nick goes on admin leave. They finally hook up at the 90s club you've ever seen and back to her place for the main event. Again, starts out sexy, but then it looks like Catherine's about to pull what looks like an ice pick, but comes up empty-handed. Nick decrees it the fuck of the century, and this pisses off her girlfriend, Roxy, who then tries to kill Nick with her car in a scene that Goldeneye ripped off about three years later. (laughs) She ends up driving off the road, dead. We learn that Catherine had a relationship with Elisa Oberman while in college at Berkeley, and it was an awful experience for her. After some investigating by Nick and his partner Gus, it's discovered that Lisa is Dr. Beth Garner, who used to masquerade with blonde hair and used to be a lesbian. Catherine eventually shuts Nick out once her book is finished, claiming that it ends with the death of of the detective, and the film reaches a fever pitch right before the shocking conclusion and the reveal of the killer's identity. Whew! So Matt, what are your initial impressions of Basic Instinct? It was a strange revisitation to a movie that I really liked a lot the first time I saw it. That was a younger version of myself. Mm. So you can imagine a 19-year-old really loving that movie for mm. obvious reasons. Mm. It's very heavy on the sex. It almost pauses 
if you might be even able to make this movie today. Probably, I know, I wonder. So going through it again, there is a moment in that film where Nick and Catherine hook up for the first time, mm-hmm. the sex scene. Mm-hmm. Ready for this? Mm-hmm. That scene is no cuts. It's four and a half minutes long. Yeah. And it is all sins revealed. <laughs> yeah. Right? Verhoeven yep. pulls no punches. Yep. You know, we don't see that. Like, if we get sex in film now, mm-hmm. it's done artistically with some lighting that sort of serves to maybe hide. Or the girl has her, like, kimono on. And, like, yeah. <laughs> it's, like, very... It doesn't allude to the graphicness of the sexual act. Four and a half minutes? Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> Holy smokes. Yep. So... My initial reaction is I'm surprised that from 1991 to 2019, I think we've taken a step back Mm -hmm. as far as what we allow regarding censorship Mm -hmm. or um, modesty in film. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen now. No, no. But I still like the movie. And I'll like the movie by telling you I think it's really good trash Mm -hmm. as noir should be. Yeah. A couple things really stuck out to me. I love that Catherine Trammell is using Nick as the case study and the new novel that she wants to write mm-hmm. because this harkens back to the origins of noir from James N. Kane and Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett, which are the trashy pulp novels mm-hmm. that essentially told the story that will later become film noir and mm-hmm. screen in yeah. the pages of like a novella. Novels that are essentially, they're not like the great American novel by James Joyce or Hemingway. It's like, no, it's pure pulp. Exactly. And so I thought that was very interesting. Um, you know, Michael Douglas can be Michael Douglas and we can debate on where his place is in the pantheon of greatness and actors. Yeah. I, you know, we've had the conversation before, which I think he was really close to being one of the all timers. Yeah. And I think through mostly film choices Mm -hmm. he derailed himself a bit Mm -hmm. from wall street to some of the other choices that follow that okay Mm -hmm. so that being said it's Catherine trammell's vehicle oh yeah it is sharon stone's movie Mm -hmm. and in my opinion if noir's done well traditional noir Mm -hmm. even though this is neo-noir it's still more in the vein of traditional noir. Mm -hmm. it needs to be the femme fatale's movie this is and it absolutely is it totally is like half when you're halfway through watching this you're like oh my gosh he's kind of like seducing me a little bit too like yeah i'm like under her spell it's so seductive the way she manipulates all the parties in this story pretty remarkable so let me talk about why that works for me and maybe why that works for you okay and let me give you another example first Mm -hmm. what i want to use is a traditional horror trope like a ghost movie i think the reason that there is a latent interest in movie is it calls on a conflict through the viewer Mm -hmm. that they can sort of familiarize themselves with ghost movies work and they clearly work because they're made in perpetuity and Mm -hmm. have been made in perpetuity for decades right Mm -hmm. they work because they tackle something that we all inevitably are going to come to which is death Mm -hmm. You can't really experience death until you go through it. And if it happens the way it's supposed to happen, there isn't a lot of comeback and tell people about it. So then that brings up the idea of ghosts. They come back, having gone through the final rite of passage that sadly all of us will eventually go through, and they come back with evil intentions. Mm -hmm. 
a friendly ghost is Casper. It's a kid story. They don't make horror movies with friendly ghosts most of the time. Mm -hmm. We could argue in The Conjuring a little bit, but we'll get to that another day. Mm -hmm. Okay. The thing that's important about in this is it takes an entirely seminal moment, death, Mm -hmm. and it corrupts it. And through that, by displaying it on a big screen in a theater filled with lots of people, we get to practice it. And we get to practice it in a really interesting way. It essentially takes the viewer's curiosity and uses it against them to create an interesting story. Okay, so that's the breakdown. So let's take now another seminal moment in Mm -hmm. the human condition, which is procreation. Mm -hmm. For me... The reason I love noir is it takes a power that men are unable to overcome, which is procreation. Mm -hmm. Catherine Trammell in this movie and other femme fatales perpetrate a necessity to keep the species going for completely devious means. Okay, so... In spades, she uses her sexuality to chump Nick along into what seems to be a case study only for a book, but maybe there's other intentions in that. Mm -hmm. The seminal piece of humanity and the femme fatale's corruption of using sex, which is entirely necessary to keeping the species going to be used as a way to... Get man to follow along like a little puppy is really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And the thing about that, Jesse, Mm -hmm. is it's unavoidable. If you choose not to do that, the species stops. So I'm interested because that's a basic Mm -hmm. condition that we all go through Mm -hmm. and it's unavoidable. And to me, like Mm -hmm. the more grounded the conflict can become in reality, the more interested I am. Mm -hmm. And I think what hammers in that point quite a bit is the graphicness of the sex it's very primal it's very rough it's very you know they're shot with really warm temperature lighting schemes it's uh also intertwined with what i think is pretty graphic death like i said when at the beginning this this murder of johnny boz i've seen a lot of scary movies i've seen a lot of violent movies that is a very violent scene. And I don't even know if I was watching like the director's cut or whatever. Yeah. That ice pick going into the dude's eye and then the dude's nose yeah. is rough. Absolutely yeah. rough. Yeah. And I think that's further reflected, you know, at the end scene that we'll we'll, we'll talk about here. But a lot of what you're what you're talking about too is um really alluded to in you know, the other genre this film kind of flirts with is which is that of the erotic thriller, which now we're kind of cross-pollinating across a few genres, but that's okay. But I think this is still going to work. Like you saying that I think still works in the following because let me let me finish the, this little bit of this last thought here. Sure. In noir and much like in life, the masculine is helpless in, this, in the state of opposing the femme fatale is he's literally fighting thousands of years of evolution and procreation. So it's not just the femme fatale, it's the femme fatale and mother nature. Mm-hmm. Right. So in order not to be swayed in this very persuasive power that the feminine has over the masculine, he has to deny Mm -hmm. the hardwired part of species that's in him. Mm -hmm. 
How do you do that? No, it's a, it's a losing. It's as necessary as breathing. Like you can't get away from that. It's a losing effort. I think right. no matter which scenario you go down, which path you walk down with this behind you. So in the femme fatale, when her sexuality is weaponized, there's this unquellable storm. And in noir, the male boat is going to be capsized mm-hmm. in the duress of this primal storm. Mm-hmm. It's just, it. the fact is he can't win. Mm-hmm. And that is a really great villain. It's a natural villain, mm-hmm. and it's done in a way most of the time that the bastardization or manipulation of sexuality is for money. Mm-hmm. Which, if you also think about that, mm-hmm. now we're getting to a very basic state here for me, but just go with me. Yeah. If species wise, and I know we have lots of discussions about gender, so let's put all that away for a minute and just be frank about this. Mm-hmm. As my shoulders are wider, and her hips are wider, and she's equipped with breasts, my job then is to protect and provide, and her job would be to bring in and 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 nurse, if you will, essentially feed. So if the woman uses her sexuality, or the femme fatale uses her sexuality, in order to achieve the ability to get money, mm-hmm. which would be provide, mm-hmm. it makes me all the less necessary as well as masculine. Mm-hmm. And... That, to me, is infinitely interesting because it can go so many ways. Yep. Okay, so one more quick thing. The only opposition to the femme fatale, Mm -hmm. because the man's going to lose, it's no shot, Mm -hmm. is another female. And the only opposition to the female that she offers Mm -hmm. is by loving and caring and out honestying Mm -hmm. the femme fatale for the pursuit of... Of the man in regards to keeping the species going. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. Yeah. And this is where we get into the Gene Triplehorn character mm-hmm. in Basic Instinct. Mm-hmm. If she's too wholesome and too honest and too loyal, all three of those things are going to fail in the face of enough lipstick and enough hips and enough breasts. And the only way that the wholesome or the good woman can overcome the femme fatale is to double down on those same traits to out femme fatale, the femme fatale. Mm -hmm. And that compromises her Mm -hmm. and makes her through the manipulation. Here it is Mm -hmm. of sex, what she's trying to oppose. And Jesse, for Mm -hmm. me, Mm -hmm. that is such an interesting conflict to see played out in screen. Better than last week's endeavor into artificial intelligence, trying to become sentient. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it, like you not for those of you that have been with us from the beginning, I think you know that where we look at film comes from two places, which is story and story creating conflict. Mm-hmm. We don't do a lot on acting. We don't I mean there's some of that, but mm-hmm. like for for you and I, mm-hmm. as much time as we spend in that vein like yeah. s- story. Mm-hmm. Which is that story for another day too, right? Yeah. Yep. That's where we look at film and how can you through reasonable choices in script mm-hmm. create reasonable conflict that's compelling and i think that what that little thing i just laid out is why i love noir when it's done well did you kill mr boz mr amell i'd have to be pretty stupid to write a book about killing and then kill somebody the way i described it in my book i'd be announcing myself as the killer i want to talk a little bit about the production history of this film this is a movie directed by Paul Verhoeven. For those of you who aren't familiar with Verhoeven's work, prior to this, he had uh, uh, been a Dutch filmmaker in his native land doing doing films. Then he came over to America and 
the first big film that he did that was a huge hit was RoboCop. And he followed that one up with Total Recall, which, you know, it just really, those two films are like, those are like hugely important to me. I, I love those two movies. And then um, had a few years off and then kind of teamed up with this, with this writer, Joe Esterhaus. Now, Joe Esterhaus wasn't a stranger to this erotic thriller genre. He had um, previously dabbled in it with films such as Jagged Edge. And with this screenplay, it was so sought after under the original working title called Love Hurts. Hmm. Pretty pretty good title, too, possibly. But um, it started a bidding war between Hollywood studios. Now, this happens frequently in, in Hollywood where everyone catches wind of a screenplay that they want to get their hands on. A very famous example of this is the screenplay for Scream. At that time, it was originally called Scary Movie. And the bidding war is essentially all the studios throwing out um, numbers and the highest bidder wins. So this movie did that. Hmm. And it was bought by uh, Corelico Pictures, who prior to this, they had done Total Recall. And by who? Corelico. Oh, they're not around. <laughs> no, no, maybe, no. Maybe you'll get into that. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Um, they had previously done Total Recall and uh, the three uh, Rambo films. Good start. A pretty good start. So... You know, after after this, you know, both Esterhaus and Verhoeven take really interesting turns, and Corelco as well. Mm-hmm. You know, Esterhaus kind of stayed in this genre with films like Sliver, Jade, and Paul Verhoeven kind of remained pretty quiet. But then they both came back, and they both came back to work with Corelco Pictures to make a film called Showgirls. Now, I don't know if any of y'all have seen Showgirls out there, but... Oh, you all have seen <laughs> yeah, Showgirls. You can tell us. It almost falls in that category of so good it's bad because it is just so schlocky. That, that sex scene in the hot tub between Elizabeth Berkley and Kyle MacLachlan is so ridiculous. You mean the girl from Saved by the Bell? Saved by the Bell, yeah. Why'd they have to get her? Yeah. So this was kind of the kiss of death threefold. Yeah. Not only was it given an NC-17 rating, which if your film gets that and you're not willing to back down to make cuts, like no one's going to go see the movie. So box office bomb, first of all. Um, this was kind of the end of, you know, Esther House's, you know, more illustrious writing career. He did some things afterwards, but nowhere to the level of basic instincts and things like that. And, you know, kind of Verhoeven had a little bit of success with Starship Troopers and Hollow Man, but that was kind of it for him. He actually went back to, to his... Um, his his country and started and started making making foreign films there, and then the biggest loser, Corelco. So prior to Showgirls, they had invested very heavily in a film called Cutthroat Island, starring oh, no. starring Gina Davis. And for the longest time, Cutthroat Island, I believe, had the record for biggest box office bomb in film history. And what was the movie that they chose not to do to do Cutthroat Island instead? It was another Arnold Schwarzenegger and Paul Verhoeven vehicle yep. about the Crusades, which, you know, kind of put those two back together in a film like that. That sounds that sounds pretty awesome, actually. Monumental decisions that that studio would like to do over. Mm-hmm. To not do that movie at the height of the power of both of those guys yep. for Cutthroat Island. Mm-hmm. And then you follow up Cutthroat Island with Showgirls. At that point, it was bankruptcy for Karelka, which, you yep. know, that's, that's quite a shame. But... This movie had a budget of $49 million, you know, compared to, you know, we've talked numbers before with, you know, Split and Glass. And this is quite a bit, uh, pretty decent budget for, for a film of this type. Sure. And uh, 
it grossed $352 million worldwide. So forget the budget at that point. That's a huge total for a film of this caliber. Now, it was a little controversial when it was released, probably due to the graphic sex and the graphic violence. But I'm in the camp that, you know, if your movie has a shred of controversy, I don't think it really keeps people away. If anything, it gets people into the seats to know what all the hullabaloo is about. You're right. So, don't see this. Yeah, don't see this. It's it's gonna it's gonna corrupt you. It's 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 gonna be this. It's gonna be that. But I I think that always works on the opposite on the opposite end. But Sharon Stone's pitch perfect casting as Catherine Tremell too. I think without her, I don't think the, the the film has the same seductive nature as it does, and the manipulability that she orchestrates against all the characters that I want to get into here in a little bit. Well, hadn't she told me like some pretty significant actresses turned down that role before yeah. Stone got it? Kim Basinger. Holy smokes! Nine and a half weeks. Yeah, <laughs> Gina Davis, Julia Roberts, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Kathleen Turner. So pretty big name actors Sharon Stone was actually pretty unknown at this time she had priorly been in Total Recall, Total Recall as uh, Schwarzenegger's wife so she had that connection to Verhoeven yeah so she eventually did win the role and won uh, the role won the role yeah. <laughs> yeah you're gonna have to get naked a lot by the way you're gonna be naked in this movie more than you'll be closed you want the part <laughs> exactly right. and um I thought this was interesting one of the actors um while having a big hit in Robocop that was considered for the Nick character was actually peter weller again having that connection to paul verhoven again wow. yeah so that one that one didn't fall through hmm. to me the biggest kind of suspension of disbelief you have to make in this movie is michael douglas being in it primarily because he's pushing 50 at this point yeah and he kind of looks it and there's that great scene in that 90s tech noir club that they're in i think that's lords of the acid they're dancing or lords of acid <laughs> yeah. they're dancing they're too, dancing like they're on acid god bless it but he really sticks out like a sore thumb in that in that scene. He's like by far the oldest dude there, and I think <laughs> in his sweater, in his in his yeah. sweater that's like yeah showing like his, his like his V-neck sweater. <laughs> yes, he's got the veins coming down his neck. <laughs> right, but I think this film might have been able to you know you know shred that maybe a, a little bit better of an actor, not better, but like a younger act, like like Alec Baldwin. I was thinking like at this time he was doing Hunt for Red October, um, The Getaway. That that could have been pretty good. But I think they did do a sort of noir with a Baldwin and Stone mm-hmm. called Sliver, right? <laughs> Sliver. So you were ahead of the curve on not, that. Not that Baldwin, though. I'm no, different one. <laughs> the better Baldwin. Billy Baldwin. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let's start like back at the beginning of this movie. So right off the bat, the first thing that just immediately leaps off the screen to me and illustrates what type of a film I'm watching is the music. Okay. And this is a film score written by Jerry Goldsmith, another one of my favorite composers, but the sweeping strings and you know it's kind of in this kaleidoscope of like like a diamond like prism type of type of thing it's a real alluring and welcoming and sexy type of music you could take that score and almost like implant it into a film like double indemnity or in a lonely place films like that it's it's very of a film noir um film score Hmm. and Right, right from there, you know, we, we got to talk about Catherine Tremell, and you've done a lot of work, you know, kind of breaking down, you know, you know, kind of this unpinned, like, you know, primal urges that she has and what she's using Nick for. And probably about every scene she's in, 
This has to be one of the smartest film characters I've seen in a really long time because of her ability to manipulate, flip the tables, and totally not make it about what she's done. And the best prime example for that is in the interrogation scene. Oh my gosh, yes. So it's in this steely cold... So again, we're contrasting our colors now. We go from the warm, passion-filled romance of sex to the steely cold sterileness. Industrial. Industrial. Yeah. Yeah. So we got these two contrasting settings. In this scene, there's one, two, three, four. There's five other dudes in there. Police, assistant DA, um, the chief of police, etc. And... They're there to question her about the murder of her boyfriend, which she, we eventually, we, we do find out that she had written about. Which is the the murder we see to open the movie with. Exactly. Johnny Boz is his name. Yes. Rockstar. And we've learned by this point that she's written a book about this exact scenario to the T. And instead of her getting intimidated and letting, letting them rile her up and say things that she doesn't want to say, she flips the tables on them in like a very orchestrated chess match best examples like when she's when she's talking about you're like yeah we used to have sex all the time we used to fuck on cocaine and then she looks at nick dead fuck on cocaine nick you're a fuck on cocaine and then he just looks at her because he's a little surprised by this everyone else is completely shocked and then it just keeps progressing and she takes off her jacket she starts smoking and they say mr mel you can't smoke in here and she says what are you gonna do charge me with smoking and Brilliant. just goes on with it. And then the the coup de grace, as you would say, is when she... And she knows what she's doing, is when she uncrosses her legs and gives them a glimpse of her lady business. And th- at this point, there are, like, concentrations, like, out the, out the window. Like, whatever they say now is moot. And it's just... It's the seduct... She's like a siren out of Greek mythology. She knows how... She's the... The orchestra, uh, the the conductor conducting an orchestra. These are her pawns, her instruments. This is her chessboard, and she's gonna do it. So she scores a checkmate. Yeah, using sexuality again mm-hmm. to take a superior position to males in mm-hmm. the film, mm-hmm. and done brilliantly. And what the brilliance in that is, she just moves from one position to the exact same position the other way. So her legs are crossed. She uncrosses them, gives everybody a quick look. And then crosses her legs the other way. Literally just changing the position in the chair to the same position. Mm-hmm. It's pure manipulation of the people in that room. And at this point, they're all sweating bullets, aren't they? <laughs> they're all under the under yeah. the lights. It's it's so great. Yeah. But I want to talk about something that I noticed in this in this run through that's actually possibly a pretty glaring plot hole. And it's kind of a shame it happened so early on. So in the opening bit where they're talking or they're investigating Johnny Boz's horrific murder scene. And, you know, they got the black light out and they see, you know, all the bodily fluids and this and that. Like, I don't know how DNA wasn't taken into account in this specific instance because we would have learned the identity of the killer right there. Yeah. But then the movie would have ended at the 15 minute mark. So, <laughs> right. so okay, maybe yeah. we're able to get it there. But these are either the dumbest cops ever or they're just immediately transfixed by sex from the get go. Mm hmm. I'm going to go with that. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the ending. Um, not just the last the last couple scenes, but let's talk about, you know, the last 30 minutes of the movie. Because, my God, is this ending is jam-packed. There's a couple staples in film noir. The first one is 
a witty banter back and forth between femme fatale and male protagonist. I think the scene you were just talking about, the interrogation scene shows that where it's almost like we're playing really quick fire tennis back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And that movie has this a lot, mostly driven by Trammell. Mm-hmm. Douglas is a willing participant, but she usually more than one-ups him in those exchanges. Mm-hmm. And the second one is a convoluted plot with the constant introduction of new characters. Now check this out. So I watched this movie through and I went back and rewatched from the hour 42 minute mark to the 202 mark, which is when the movie fades out. Mm -hmm. Let me give you a beat by beat breakdown as we go through. And this may not make sense and I don't really want to get into all of this for those of you that haven't seen the movie, you just need to see it. But essentially at the one hour and 42 minute uh, pull out mark in the film Nick goes back to Berkeley he discovers which is where Catherine Trammell and Lisa Hoberman had their affair in college he discovers that Lisa, the Lisa Hoberman report was obtained by a cop in IA named Nielsen who's been killed earlier in the film mm-hmm. it's why Nick's on admin leave and he's on admin leave because he's had a pretty questionable pass with you know things like fucking on cocaine and shooting tourists and just just terrible things (laughs) like that normal every day of the run police work exactly okay we also discover that at that moment beth's motive to kill nielsen would then be that he knows about her past with Catherine at berkeley okay yeah so we keep going so then that means that beth killed the rocker johnny boz to frame Catherine. What? Wait. Okay. So then Nielsen finds out about Beth's attempts to frame Catherine for Johnny Boz, and that's foiled by Nielsen's discovery. Okay, that's the, the the progression there. So then Beth kills Nielsen because he's IA, and he asked her about her past with Catherine, and therefore he starts to uncover her true intentions. So then Beth kills Nielsen. We're not done. The big question at this point is. Why would Beth kill Boz? And the truth is, that's never going to be answered because Beth didn't kill Boz. Or wait, did she? We'll get there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so enter the deceased Joseph Garner. <laughs> this is Beth's husband. Who the hell is Beth? What? I thought she was a lesbian. Exactly. Oh, wait, wasn't she with Nick also? Yes, wasn't her name was. Lisa Oberman? Oh, yeah. She was, mm-hmm. He's been dead for five years. And we find this out as Nick tries to find Beth at the hospital. We turn out that, find out that she's gone. And that the secret is revealed at the hospital that a year earlier, Nielsen was on to Beth and went to the hospital giving the same line of questionings that Nick is giving now to like just the hospital staff. Okay, so he just happens to talk to the same people. Like, So the hospital cop tells Nick that upon Joseph's death, they did inquire into, into Beth's... Um, involvement in her husband's murder and found out that she had a girlfriend which would be Catherine Trammell Mm -hmm. okay so Nick then goes back to meet with Trammell he finds out that um, she doesn't want anything to do with him so she dumps him and now Catherine has hooked up with Hazel Dobkins an older woman who murdered her family so then that was the inspiration for another book that she had written right yeah (laughs) okay so then Gus picks up Nick outside Catherine's apartment, mm-hmm. I guess, yeah. wherever the hell they are. And he tells Nick that there's a connection between Catherine's roommate from freshman year who knows about Catherine and Hoberman. And also that Johnny Boz's psychologist shares an office with Bess 
on Van Ness, which I guess is a street. Thank God. Okay, so then they go, I guess, to meet the roommate. Yeah. And Gus gets killed by a stranger with an ice pick in the elevator. Mm -hmm. Beth then arrives at the same time at this apartment and then is shot by Nick, who is not in time to save Nick, to save Gus from the attack. Yeah. Okay, so then we go to a blonde wig and an ice pick that are discovered in the stairwell. So, Mm -hmm. okay, this whole time the murderer has been Beth. Yeah. Okay? They go to Beth's apartment. Mm -hmm. They find the gun that was used in the murder of Nielsen hiding in the bookcase or hidden in the bookcase. Yeah. We find the novels that Catherine has written in Beth's drawer. And we find a bunch of pictures where Beth is looking at Catherine in a Mm -hmm. wanton way or whatever, right? Okay, so all roads have led to nothing. The room he's dead... We find out through a telephone conversation. The files from Berkeley that Nielsen got about Lisa Hoberman, who, by the way, is Beth, have suddenly gone missing. Maybe they're burned. The gun in the apartment matches the one used on Nielsen. And finally, Boz's psychologist and Beth met at a party a year ago. So all loose ends are tied up, and Beth was behind it all. Or or was she? (laughs) Well, the closure is then with Catherine and Nick. Mm -hmm. So... Nick goes back to Catherine, who just dumped him brutally. Yeah. I think that was six minutes ago. But again, okay. the the trance that he's in. Right. Yeah, I'll go back to bed with you again. Okay, let's do ra- that exactly right. this film. <laughs> she says in a very, oh, rescue me kind of way, Nick, I can't care about anyone anymore. Everyone that I love dies. Like that whole spiel, right? And she loses everyone that she cares about. So, make up sex. Yeah. Okay. And so now Nick says, what's next? And then we get the line that he's used on her a few times. Well, honey, we're going to fuck like minks, raise rugrats, and live happily ever after. Cut to more makeup sex. And then we get Mm -hmm. to the final sequence in the film, which I will give you the pleasure of delivering to our audience. It is. Okay. So and and it actually looks like the film's gonna cut to black. There's like a like a like almost like like, slow pan. Like a slow pan to black and then it comes back. And as they're in the throes of passion, the camera brilliantly pans to underneath the bed to reveal the ice pick. And then, bum, bum, like that, that ominous music from Fade Goldsmith. Out. Yeah, bum, bum, there. 2.03. Yeah, 2.03. That's two hours and three minutes. Yeah. Everything I just told you yeah. happened in 20 minutes. 20, yeah, 20-ish minutes. What the heck? Yeah, it's loaded. <laughs> okay. Okay, so like here, here's my impression. Maybe I'm just wrong and I've been misinterpreting this movie the whole the, the, the whole time. Yeah, probably. Uh, but like <laughs> you know, Beth Garner went there like to, to, to meet these people at this apartment building. I thought they were in a hospital, so I don't know where the hell I'm at actually. Right. And then, you know, the, the wig and the ice picker there. So we're meant to kind of also believe that this is Tremel because we see the ice pick yet again. So is she pulling like a Scooby-Doo villain playbook here and just like running between her apartment, Nick's thing, and just placing shit everywhere? Like, I think so. <laughs> I think so. She's just running around trying to Well, plant- don't forget, since she's used Scooby-Doo, she probably had old man withers to help her plant the evidence where yeah. she needed. So if we're going to go and down And she did road. get away, away with it too because of those pesky kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, Can I say that for as absurd as all that is? Yeah. I still love it. No, it, it, it does. That's actually why I really also like noir. Mm-hmm. Is if you're going to sit there and try to decode the movie, mm-hmm. A, B, C, D, point by point, story beat by story beat, mm-hmm. you're kind of wasting your time. Mm-hmm. Because regardless of none of that stuff makes sense, you know that Beth has been shot by Nick mm-hmm. and is dead. Mm-hmm. And that we've discovered the killer. So how we get there doesn't matter. We know Beth was the bad guy. Yeah. And then 
we get to the bit at the ice pick at the end mm-hmm. and none of that other 20 minutes of like machine gun like action matters no. because you still get to what the conclusion is mm-hmm. that's why i love it mm-hmm. there's a funny part in that movie where we're in the police station and it's coming at you in very quick succession about where this came from and who this was <laughs> and they keep mentioning this this person named Salinas. I watched this like six times. I'm like, who in the hell is Salinas? Salinas is the name of the hospital that they that Nick went to to find Beth. Blah blah blah. Here's <laughs> and I, you know what, Jesse? I love that. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. The other thing that kind of drives me crazy a little bit there towards the end there is the constant back and forth. 40 miles here, 30 miles here, this to these yeah. these police stations and these hospitals and Berkeley and this and that and Dopkins home. Like, it's like mm-hmm. they're just driving everywhere. And, like, you almost kind of need a notepad like you have to, like, oh, wait a minute. Like, it's a new person. I need to write their name down. I need to see how they fit into this. You need, I like, really did do that. I sat down <laughs> you need and a, it took an hour and I just beat it out. You need a flow chart. Yeah. But I want to talk about that last shot. Okay. Because this is everything I love about when a film ends the right way. Okay. So that's a loaded final shot. Catherine is the killer. Yeah. Killed Boz, killed all this, ran around like 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 this minor 49er from Scooby-Doo. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That last shot elicits a lot. Mainly, you're wondering, okay, she didn't grab it in that instance, but is she going to grab that ice pick tomorrow? The next day? The next month? In a year? When's she gonna kill Nick? And I would like to say, like, go see Basic Instinct 2 and you'll find out why, but don't do that because not only do you not find out, that's like one of the worst movies ever made. Yeah. But it alludes enough to me and leaves me with enough mystery that I can kind of figure out how that's gonna play out. She's gonna kill him. When she needs new material. Exactly. Right. Eventually. And I love when directors and writers don't take the cop out ending and show us what we're already gonna figure out. Like, I want to give you an example in, okay. in the film Seven, which mm-hmm. that's a really well seen movie. We kind of know kind of know how that, that ends at this point. In the end, we see, you know, Brad Pitt kind of going away in a, in a cop car in a very eloquent uh, epilogue by Morgan Freeman. We don't need to see the scene after that with, like, Brad Pitt in, like, therapy and no. Morgan Freeman, like, no. picking up his boxes. No, it ends perfectly. Right. I'll give you another example. In Vertigo. And Hitchcock was notorious about how he ended movies. Like, he was either really good at it or kind of, like, not great. Um, in Vertigo, um, Kim Novak falls out, out the bell tower and Jimmy Stewart is looking down at her. His vertigo cured. Exactly. Looking down at what's just happened. She's died for the being scared by the, spooked by this nun. And we get it. This trauma that he's gone through for two hours is fixed. There's actually a, a tacked on ending to that where he's like in the hospital with uh, Barbara Bel Geddes and like, oh my God, get that out of there. Like, talk about killing your momentum. That's like a roller coaster going down and then you got like still a little hill to go over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to, might give you a little rush, but at the end, it's not going to satisfy you. Oh, but- and that's the brilliance of this final shot. It's this image of a steely, sterile ice pick in this steely, sterile thing in this warm, passionate environment. And it's just a, it's it's just a, it's not just a question of how, but when juxtaposition of anger and sex. Exactly. So, which is this whole movie? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So it, it does get a little bananas there at the end, but I think I think the end delivers satisfaction. Can we talk about Beth for a minute? Sure. The Gene Triplehorn character in this, the Beth character, is I think really important to the movie. When we first meet her in the film, she's working, I guess, for internal affairs or through some division of internal affairs as the in-house psychiatrist for troubled police. And somewhere prior to the movie beginning, she's had a relationship with Nick. And she's also, in a previous portion of her life, had a relationship with Catherine. Mm -hmm. Now, I guess she's decided that she's a grown-up and she doesn't want to be a lesbian anymore or likes Nick more. I'm not exactly sure. But she has moved to a position where I think she really, really cares for Nick. And for some reason, probably because he's into drugs and really fast women Mm -hmm. and likes to shoot tourists and just the (laughs) general, I mean, his nickname in the movie shooter because he killed people. So he's moved on. So the first interaction that we see between Nick and Beth Mm -hmm. is in a session. And he basically is asking her to green light his psychic evaluation so that he can get back to business. She acquiesces and green lights his ability to return to the force. Mm -hmm. But in the context of that conversation, we find out they've been together. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm going to get to the part that I think is uh, kind of a hard moment to watch in the movie. Mm -hmm. She shows up at his apartment. Actually, he... No, no. He gets into an argument in the bar with that Nielsen guy mm-hmm. that ends up shot over the steering wheel later in the film. Yeah. And he's mad at that guy for a lot of different reasons. And we haven't really even come to the crux of it, but they just don't get along. Yeah, they got a past. Right. So in this bar, Beth happens to show up. Mm-hmm. She kind of breaks the fight up between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And then they decide to go home together. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to say this other than... Michael Douglas absolutely turns her out in that scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, you want to talk about she throws her over the couch, rips off her clothes, and just gives her hell. Mm-hmm. And I want to say too, like she repeatedly says, "No, no, stop." And it's like it's like going into like rape territory at this point and he just he he can't stop is the thing. Like And she's a little pissed about it. Yeah. And I think they finish. I mean, it's stupid to sound... That sounds silly to say. Mm-hmm. She's pissed about being raped. It, it, look, she's a willing participant. I don't want to get into that whole thing because mm-hmm. that's not what this is about. Yeah. But she she's sort of down. Mm-hmm. And that's clear. Yeah. Okay. So they finish. And she's sort of laying there with her clothes half-torn, completely unsatiated. And he is seems to be very happy with where he is. Mm-hmm. And what we get is this line from her that she says, you've never been like that before. Mm -hmm. And upon meeting Catherine Trammell, Nick's clean before he meets her. Mm -hmm. I guess he's not doing drugs anymore Mm -hmm. either. Mm -hmm. And Catherine Trammell has sort of stoked the fires of this wild man inside him. Mm -hmm. And he takes it out Mm -hmm. on her in that scene. Can I alley-oop where you're going with this? Go, man. Yeah, go. Yeah. Here it is. It literally accumulates with... Hey, do you got a cigarette? And she says, I didn't I thought you I thought you quit. And he's like, and she's like, they're in the top drawer, get it on your way out. And she leaves, slams the door, and he's gonna take his smoke. So I think at this point, be interesting to see when this happens in the screen. It's 25 minutes in? Yeah. 
that the transformation of corrupt Nick is complete. He's drinking. The sex is more violent. He's smoking again. The only thing missing is that cocaine. But we see him now. The character we saw in the first act of the movie is totally different at this moment right here. Mm-hmm. So the the Catherine Trammell, I'm sorry, the Beth, I don't even know what her last name is. What's her last name? Garner. The Beth Garner and Nick's story continues. And basically the rest of the film, he kind of treats her like crap. Mm-hmm. And you know what's odd about this is she seems to be undyingly loyal to him mm-hmm. and protects him and makes sure that he's checked whatever boxes need to be checked to be reinstated into the force yeah. and looks after him. And I think she genuinely cares about him. Mm-hmm. Now in the scene where Gus has been stabbed in the elevator and his bloody corpse is laying on the floor. That scene's violent too. Very violent. Yeah. Beth comes around the corner in the same apartment complex. Mm-hmm. And remember, we're at this apartment complex to meet... Catherine's roommate from yeah. freshman year who supposedly has a line on what really went on between Beth and Catherine yeah. some years ago yeah. at Berkeley. Yep. She shows up and she's wearing the same overcoat that the woman or the person who killed Gus was wearing. And she reaches in her pocket to get something and Nick freaks out and mm-hmm. guns her down. Yep. We come to find out that was in her pocket was the Bart Simpson keychain. Mm-hmm. How very 1991. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of awesome. Yeah. And she's just dead. Yeah. And you want to talk about an unjust ending for a mm-hmm. character. Look, despite all of the, the possibilities of her being the villain, it's pretty clear at this moment that she is. Mm-hmm. And we find out later she's not. And this goes back to, I think one of the things that makes this movie work is when you compare Tramel or Catherine and Beth, you see the play between... The woman who can use her sexuality as weaponized versus the woman who's trying to use her sexuality in a way that's honest. Mm -hmm. And in noir, one of those two is completely disposable, Mm -hmm. mishonest. And Moshi gets an unjust ending. Oh, yeah. She loves him the whole film. Mm -hmm. And he just gets, she just gets gunned down. Real quick, one final point. Uh, It kind of goes back to the film we watched last week, Serenity, with Diane Lane. Anne Hathaway and Diane Lane. Anne Hathaway was kind of this outsider coming in and invading this this world, and Diane Lane was the the in place, you know, character. You know, the the the, the daily like visit to to find the cat and, and afternoon and, hookup and all that. To so, find the cat, what? Is that th- a metaphor? I, yeah, I think that plays into a lot of movies where they obviously have a thing, and then this outside mysterious female enters that environment. And totally disrupts the ecosystem. I'm going to give you the best example I of that I think in all of film. Oh wow! And it's okay, in the birds. Okay, Melanie Daniels, Tippi Hedren, and Suzanne Plachet. Mm, great. Oh, oh yeah. Jesse, her coming to Bodega Bay oh, not only disrupts the. Let's not talk about the birds because that I think that'd be a great movie to talk about. Yeah, we'll do that. But she's a school teacher on this island with Mitch, oh, who they've had a, a on again off again thing for years. And then here comes Melanie, this in San, how fitting San Francisco again, right? From San Francisco to this town, and she totally disrupts that relationship and everyone else's relationship. Again, the blonde and the brunette, that 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 mainstay with the mysterious outsider, and that's on full display here. Oh, that's so good! Damn you, that's really good. <laughs> it's on full display here. Okay, great. Yeah. I love it. Great. Yeah. If you guys haven't seen the birds recently, the revisitation for the 
abuse that Suzanne Plachette puts herself through in that movie. And let's just spoil, let's just spoil terrific. let's just spoil right now. She ends up in an unjust death too. Uh, yeah, eyes pecked out and everything on the schoolyard steps. Like, yep, how awful, awful. Okay, so if Verhoeven is a scholar of noir, mm-hmm. then he's going back to one of the other parts in noir that's really important, which is the role that you and I are talking about: mm-hmm. the wholesome gal who is going to meet her demise because of it. Whether it's um, in Double Indemnity mm-hmm. or The Postman Always Rings Twice, which would be the girl that Nick picks up at outside the in that car and they drive off to Mexico. I don't even remember where the hell that is. Yeah, but yeah. They, um, The daughter in, in Double Indemnity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that character mm-hmm. is really, really important. Yep. And in this movie, I think it's done really well. Mm-hmm. Gene Triplehorn is an interesting character in and of herself and we can go back and forth on career choices and Gene Triplehorn's filmography. I don't want to do that. What I'm saying is Mm -hmm. in this, in this movie, man, she's really, really well cast. Mm -hmm. Even from the moments when we see regular Beth Garner to garishly clad with way too much red makeup on Mm -hmm. to look like a slash in her (laughs) mouth that man Verhoeven doesn't, excellent job with that character Mm -hmm. of letting someone be disposable so that the femme fatale can be even more evil the diane lane character i don't know if she's super sympathetic in serenity i actually do think she likes matthew mcgonaghy's character exactly but we could have seen that story played out to an extent uh this kind of unspoken rivalry between karen and and diane and diane lane which Let's not get back into that because we tore the hell out of that movie last week. But no, but the, that character's no, that, yeah, that character's really important in noir. Yeah, and these roles are at play. Yeah, it was just it's used very effectively in yes. Basic Instinct and just totally thrown to the dogs in Serenity. Okay. Tell me, Nikki, were you frightened last night? That's the point, wasn't it? That's what made it so good. You shouldn't play this game. Why not? I like it. You're in over your head. Maybe. But this is how I'll catch my killer. A lot to say about Basic Instinct this week. So, Matt, how would you rate, grade, Basic Instinct? Call. It's not one of the all-time greats, but I think it's an important film in the overall genre. And this movie spawned a lot of similar films, Mm -hmm. from Sliver to Disclosure. We can go on and on. There's probably not done better, though. No, not done better. Yeah. No. But ones that saw, hey, that movie made some money mm-hmm. and we should try to emulate the same sort of deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, it's call. Uh, I mean, a solid call. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, not like Sky Vodka call, like Maker's Mark or Knob Creek call. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found it really, really enjoyable. And some movies don't age well over time. This movie aged well over time insofar as for me... I don't think they could make this movie this way today again. And I don't know if they could find an actress who would want to be as revealed yeah. as Sharon Stone in this mm-hmm. movie. I, I I could watch it again. If it's on, I'll probably watch it. It's not perfect by any means. Mm-hmm. There's some pretty terrible parts. His partner, the Gus character, is awful. Uh, some of the lines are pretty wooden. But man, there's eight or nine moments in this movie that are really, really good. Mm -hmm. And I know for all of us that watched this at a prior time in our life, all we all loved it because it was just so much sex. Mm -hmm. And that was intriguing to watch. I'll just be honest about it. Sharon Stone's hot. Mm -hmm. So 
that has sort of ebbed over time. I mean, that doesn't have the same draw to me that it did back then. Still a draw, but not the same kind of way. Mm-hmm. Not a 19-year-old kid anymore. Yeah. But I think what, what really stuck out to me was the respect that Verhoeven went mm-hmm. to pay the genre. And in so doing, created a pretty solid entry. Mm-hmm. It, I, it's really good trash. Mm-hmm. As noir should be. Noir is not Anne of Green Gables. <laughs> yeah. Yuck. But I don't want to watch Anne of Green Gables either. Exactly. You just want noir. I just want noir. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Okay, your turn. I'm actually going to have to go with... I'm actually going to give this film a grade of single barrel. Okay. And probably about like a single barrel minus whatever. Around the time that I first saw this, I believe that the Fifty Shades of Grey thing was like really taking off the books were on the bestseller list and i was kind of wondering i was like what's what's the fuss eventually i found out that it's like so poorly written and then the movies are just utter garbage and i was like well what were what's what's this genre trying to replicate or what did these books trying to replicate like that's been done before and the film that i kind of found that you know had the eroticism and and and, and some of the violence was basic instinct and i just thought done infinitely better you know Sure. We did talk about last week, you know, about, you know, the less of what you see sometimes works better. You know, very true in, in, in horror, I believe. In this film, the gratuitousness of the violence and the sex play off each other so well that I think you really get to the the human nature of these two, these two trains that are just on a collision course. And, you know, if you stack up Verhoeven's... I'll just call it the Verhoeven trilogy of Robocop Total Recall in this. My God, that's a pretty damn good trilogy of films. It's a shame it kind of went a little off the rails there. And very, very early 90s, right? Very early, like late 80s. Feels like it. Late 80s, early 90s. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, the use of the music, Jerry Goldsmith's score, the cinematography that convoluted to the point of insanity ending with the calling card of the ice pick there at the bottom i just think you know it's you know if you want something that's sexy this film has it. if you want something that's violent this has it if you're into procedural investigating a murder this has it like it's got everything we like about noir from the 40s with being you know of its time in the 90s and i would argue that like a film really hasn't that's tried to mesh film noir you know again talking about like serenity present day I don't think we've ever gotten as good as Basic Instincts since then. So Absolutely. I will say that. I do want to say one last thing, something I noticed. Um, I'm a huge Seinfeld fan. And in this movie, not there's not one, not two, but five Seinfeld actors in this movie. Mm-hmm. Of course, you have uh, uh, Wayne Knight as the assistant district attorney and a few others. But I just thought that was pretty hilarious. And if you're a Seinfeld fan, you'll pick them out. Um, in, a, in a lineup they must have been shooting on like the same like sound stages because <laughs> you know what else is interesting too in that same regard you talked about Jean Triplehorn and maybe this being her first appearance in film yeah I'm pretty sure this is Mitch Pileggi's first appearance in mm, film too yeah. of X-Files mm-hmm. fame he's yeah. one of the lackey cops that sort of was working with that Nielsen fellow that ends up getting shot mm-hmm. and the, the last thing I want to say about this is for all of the over the top writing that maybe Esther House mm-hmm. is sort of accredited with. Like he's not short on subtlety. If you've yeah. seen Robocop and you've seen Total Recall and you've seen this, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of subtlety in the way Joe Esterhouse mm-hmm. writes. Mm-hmm. The brilliance of Esther House is in his dialogue. Mm-hmm. When you get in those moments between 
uh, Catherine and Nick, mm-hmm. the back and forth between the two of them is close to the best that's ever been done, which is between Stanwick and McMurray and yeah. Double Indemnity. It's like the equivalent of her trying to take his clothes off without doing the action. She's doing it with his word, with her words. To, to come up with the character representations that are given from each of those two in those moments of dialogue, Estherhouse really, really does a good job there. I, that was one of the other things that really stuck out to me this film is how well written yeah. the dialogue is. Not all characters, but the two that matter the most. Yeah, they're the, they're the leads. Really done well. Excellent. Yeah. Well, that wraps up a basic instinct. Now, before we leave you today, we're going to head out the door with a nightcap. So, Matt, go ahead and hit me with the nightcap question of the week. So the nightcap this week revolves around neo-noir, and we're going to define neo-noir as anything that is post-1968 to modern day. And the reason I chose 1968 is that's the end of the Hayes Code. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be an essential component of what we talk about next week when we do our film for next week. Mm -hmm. So 1968, post-Hayes Code to modern day, favorite Neo, scare quotes around Neo, Neo Neo-noir. Excellent. Okay, so I'm going to go with from 1982 and i hope you don't leap over this desk and strangle me mm. but i'm going with blade runner oh my god <laughs> just, you, just just let me let me have my piece Jesus. now i believe blade runner you know and depending on which version you you want and there's a whole story on on that to be told but the director's cut of blade runner really feels like a film noir set in in a futuristic time it's that proceed. It's that cop investigating, and instead of like murderers or everything, he's looking for these. He's got to put down these replicants, and in that one, you get you get the voiceover by by Harrison Ford. You have a femme fatale of sorts in Rachel, played by Sean Young, and also a uh, Pris Daryl Hannah, Daryl Hannah, and the other name of the other one's escaping me at this point. Yeah, I just I just think stylistically. You know, between the lighting, the set design, it's green, it's grimy, industrial, sterile lighting of 2019 Los Angeles, just with the futuristic take on it. And whether Deckard's a replicant or not at the end, like, again, it's going into that becoming sentient thing. But the look of Blade Runner, to me, like, really fits that neo-noir sensibility and just because it's not set in present day doesn't mean it shouldn't be able to, to qualify. But just I'm a huge fan of that movie. I know you hate it, like with a oh, fi- hate it. I, with a fiery passion. Yeah. Maybe we'll have to do that movie one day, but I'm I'm picking Blade Runner as my favorite neo noir. Yeah, so Blade Runner's on a list for me too, and that's like ten most rated film most <laughs> overrated films of all time. You're right, I, I hate that movie. But okay, it's yeah. your choice, not yeah. mine. Yeah. Uh, there were three that were in contention for me. Memento was in contention. Um, Blood Simple was in contention. Mm -hmm. And then the one that I'm going to go with, and I'm going to actually go against one of my own rules. I told you Noir needed to have Femme Fatale. Mm -hmm. This doesn't. But I'm going to stick to the categories that Hollywood allows. Sure. And it's Seven. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I can say about Seven other than it's one of the four, five films that literally changed what I thought about film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love it. It is one of the five on my shelf. We've talked about it a little bit. The Hustler, Unbreakable, mm-hmm. Seven, the others two to be revealed as we go forward. Mm-hmm. This is one of them. 
I, I mean, it's grime, it's grit. Fincher at his absolute, without question, best. Morgan Freeman, Brad Pitt, great cast. Mm-hmm. Delivered superbly mm-hmm. interesting. It's scary. Mm-hmm. It's There's a couple moments of levity. Uh, it's got a terrific ending. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, that movie is as close to perfection it's, for cop or buddy movie mm-hmm. I've ever seen. It's perfect story in a nutshell. And we talked about earlier about how it's kind of an unnamed city. I always thought it was New York or Los Angeles or even Chicago for that matter. You're never told. And it's meant to be the unnameable city that, you know, this this is happening wherever you want it to happen. Kind of a thing. The and, motivation of Kevin Spacey yeah. as John Doe to teach society the evils that it's perpetuating without knowing mm-hmm. is such a good villain arc. Mm-hmm. And then to carry it out the way he did in this very grandiose fashion as these cops uncover it and it's displayed and brought forth through different sources of media for the public to learn from is just so smart. Uh, the last 30 minutes is totally show-stopping. It's, yeah. it's, it's incredible. So mm-hmm. great choice. Great choice. All right, excellent. Uh, This wraps up this week's episode of Rye Smile Films. Uh, What do you think the best neo-noir is? Or what's a trailer that you felt was extremely misleading? Please uh, send us an email at ryesmileproductions at gmail.com or leave us a message on Facebook or Instagram. And before we leave for this week, um, Matt, why don't you let us know what we're going to be diving into? So we'll finish up the third entry in this cast next week in what aforementioned Double Indemnity. Mm -hmm sort of the quintessential film noir, the standard that we're all measuring the other ones from. Mm-hmm. Uh, a great effort by Billy Wilder with James and Kane and Barbara Sandwick, and I can't wait to get into some of the stuff we talked about with the Hayes Code and mm-hmm. the role that it played in there. I can't Again, I can't wait to do this movie yeah. next week. This cask has been very interesting because we've seen a present-day release with Serenity, this kind of late 80s, 90s resurgence in the erotic thriller genre. Yeah. And now we're going back to the heyday, like when it was firing on all cylinders so i think we're gonna get a pretty nice spectrum of what this genre has been all about all right so raise one up say cheers matt cheers jesse and we'll see you all next week with our review of double indemnity have a good week everybody we'll see you in the dark thank you for listening to rye smile films follow us on facebook and instagram to stay in the know for future episodes and be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Google Play Music. Basic Instinct is property of Coralco Pictures, The Studio Canal, TriStar Pictures, and Guild Film Distribution, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Very impressive. He got off before he got off. (laughs) Gentlemen, this is sensitive.